imagine if each morning when you wake up, you're smiling and looking forward to your day, knowing you are happy even while you're dealing with grief and loss. The Grief and Happiness Podcasts inspires, comforts, and supports you with each new episode. I'm Emily Zerothret, welcoming you to explore with me your life of endless possibilities. Aloha. Welcome to the Grief and Happiness podcast again this week. I'm so happy that you're here. And I have a very interesting guest this time on a subject that's a little bit different than we usually cover on this podcast. And we discovered that we had a lot in common, so this should be an interesting conversation. And this is Kevin O'Connor. He's an author, and we're going to talk about his book that just came out. Kevin, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about you and your book? Sure, Emily. Thanks. Thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to to be a part of your podcast and and in, in listening to some of your your uh, sessions of the podcast. I I know what it is. I realize more and more the importance of the the work you're doing. Yeah, I I uh, finished writing a book. It's been published now about six weeks. Called Two Floors Above Grief, and it chronicles stories uh, from. From my experiences as a child and the nephew of undertakers, and the the title represents the the two floors represents the apartments that were located above the funeral home that my father and my uncle owned. Uh, they were at one location starting in 1930, but then they moved to the location that is the focus of the book um, in 19 uh, later 30s 1940, and then operated it until 1984. And then sold it. It's still in existence, though, uh, with with our names still on the sign with different owners. But so this is their 92nd year of operation in the town of Elgin, Illinois. But I call it, um, you know, a memoir of two families in the unique place we called home, because uh, growing up uh, there weren't I had there weren't a lot of people, a lot of kids in my classes in high school or elementary school or college that had those experiences. And somebody's asked me before, when did you start writing this book? And I say, ah, I was born in 1950. I started writing 72 years. I started thinking about it 72 <laughs> years ago because each day was a story. Each day, I didn't know I was accumulating stories because to me, it was just who I was and it was my my life. I, I kid in the book that my brothers and cousins were likely conceived in the same house <laughs> that people were being grieved and waked in the floors below. And then I also go on, okay, now that you've thought about that, those conceptions, put it away and let's go <laughs> on with the stories. So um, I guess we all have a tendency sometimes to think about, gee, how was I conceived? And then we think about it and then it goes away. <laughs> so uh, the same thing. But um, I've had a really good time putting the book together. And a lot of the book is based on letters that were sent back and forth from my aunt and uncle and my parents to me during my college years. And one of those years was in Rome, Italy. So the book talks about, you know, my my living in Rome, things that happened that year, how far away I was from home. And another part of the book is just talking about the importance and the lost art, I think, of letter writing. And so the the letters uh, provide a launching off point for other stories that that are told about the house. It's been a 
memorabilia type thing for me. I, I, I accumulated these accumulated these letters, and uh, over a period of time, they they ended up in folders, shoe boxes, <laughs> file folders, uh, boxes. And about ten years ago, I decided, what am I going to do with these? And I laid them out on a living room floor where I was living at the time, and I decided I'd put them in sequence from early ones in the 1950s all the way up through the 70s and the 80s. And as I sequenced them, and then I put them into plastic file folders and put them in into binders, I ended up with about five wide binders of letters. And I thought, what am I going to do with these? And then I realized there's a story there and started to uh, just put those together. And then uh, about two years ago, I had the good fortune to get involved in some uh, writing class sponsored by Nonfiction Book School. And they helped me just to categorize and, and figure out the themes of the book. And so the book isn't really told sequentially, as some memoirs are. This It's more based on themes which and flashbacks and things like that, a, a style that I just sort of developed as I wrote. But that's a little bit about the book. And uh, hopefully, I think with our dialogue, I'll be able to tell you some more, too. That that sounds just wonderful. And it's one of the reasons that I am so happy that you're here, because letter writing is one of the things I focus on writing to help you with grief. And letter writing yeah. is one of the big things I focus on. And it's really kind of a lost art. So mm-hmm. hearing about how many letters that you had and the impact they had on your life and now being able to to bring that story out for not only other people to have, but your family can have the book now to pass it down and, and people yes. will know about it. So, so true, I, I so think true. that's wonderful. Well, that was my, you, you uh, when you say that, I think you know, when I took my writing classes and, and you said you, you've been a teacher of writing for quite a while and I've t- done my fair share of writing classes and writing different jobs I've had. But one of the things we focused on, and I think most writers do, is who is your audience? And who is your first audience? And so my first audience was really the offspring of the people who grew up in this in our house, which now totals about 300 <laughs> various grandchildren and nieces and nephews and everything over the years. And and because I, they would tell me over, we would be together. Oh, we, that was a great story. How are you going to remember this? And so that's really my was my first audience. And then as I started writing. I, I um, when I got into the second, you know, later drafts, I thought, no, this story is broader than just my family. It's stories that ring true for any family, no matter if you're a funeral director's family or uh, your father or mother are employed in different areas. There's so many commonalities. And that's what I'm finding right now is the book gets more legs and more and more outreach and I get more feedback that, hey, this happened in my family or I I had a similar experience when I was a kid or your father sounds like my father. And these people may not have anything to do with the death industry or the grief industry. They're just people that relate to the richness of family. And that's that's been real pleasure for me to, to see that unfold and, and know that the audience, although my family really appreciates the book, and most of them all have their copies now. Thank you, Christmas time. Yeah. Uh, but, but it's just uh, it's been fun to watch watch the book as it progresses. That that's so interesting, and uh, I know that a lot of people that I've talked to have when somebody that they're very close to dies, one of their instincts is to write a book, and generally, mm-hmm. when they want to write that book, it's a memoir. 
And yours is a memoir, but it's certainly different than most of the ones I've read. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because yeah. you've got so many different interesting subjects in it. And most memoirs tell a story with a beginning and a middle and an end. And everything is wrapped around that. Where, where you've got different topics and, and different kinds of stories throughout the book that, that make it interesting. And it's, I, I think if, if for my listeners who are thinking about writing a book about grief, it's something for you to think about that in, instead of just a memoir, that you can make it more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, why I invite people at the end or my, my closing to the book, you know, is, and why the way I've been signing the books that I've been handed out is been handing out is just, Hey, now it's your turn. Now, I, I've told, I have to go to the book here, um, that there is no end to this book. Continue and let your stories flourish and be shared. Because certainly I have more stories and more letters I could have referred to. But I, I, I had to stop myself and say, hey, I, this is not a, a trilogy. It's a book. And we can't make it too long. There, Although there's a sequel in my head. But in the in the other hand, I want I wanted to encourage people to examine their own histories and to be able to say, Hey, I gotta dig up those letters, and that's what uh, one friend of mine said. Hey, you put me in a position to go to those files and see what's in there because I've been moving these things from house to house, mm-hmm. and uh, so it's been. If I can create that kind of inspiration to others to not to find their story, whether it's in letters or for our current generation, it might be found in piles of old emails or things you go back in your email files to find because it uh anyway that that's that's what i'm feeling now that we're into the the reading part and people getting getting feedback to me yeah Um, you were reminding me of when when dad traded our house for the ambulance company we had to move and there was mm -hmm. a small house on the ambulance company property so we moved there and about a week after we moved in my mother's mother died And we ended up bringing all of her stuff from her home into our home that we didn't, it was, it was smaller than where we'd lived before. We didn't have room, but there was a a freestanding garage on the property that we just kind of put everything in the garage and locked the doors and didn't even think about going in or going through anything. It was just too much for mom with, with all the upheaval with losing our home and uh, learning how to run a business that nobody knew anything about. And so we just left them there. And when I was going to get married, my mom said, I think there's something in the garage that I want you to have. And what it was, was on top of their wedding cake, they had a bride and a groom that were ceramic. They'd Uh been dressed with crepe paper. So when we found them, they were (laughs) kind of a new bride and groom. (laughs) (laughs) We were able to dress them and use them on top of our wedding cake. And that that was kind of special. But when when we went out there and started looking for them, we found the most interesting letters. They they were fabulous. And mom had no idea they were out there because there were things that my grandmother had saved. And I learned so much about my family. One bundle of letters that I found tied in a pretty ribbon. It was really nice. I didn't really realize that my grandmother had been married before my grandfather. Mm -hmm. That Mm -hmm. my mom's brother was a a half-brother and that she'd had a sister that nobody talked about because of how she died. And so I, I learned all this stuff from the letters. And one of the, the the big thing in the letters was that my grandmother was married to somebody whose job was about 25 miles away from where they lived. 
And so he had to go to that job on Monday morning and come home on Friday night. And he'd only get to see her on the weekends because it was so far to go that, that 25 miles. Miles in those days. It was a big trip. And when he was at work one day, he, he got very, very ill. And the only way they could get him to a hospital was to put him on a train to send him to the closest hospital. And by the time he got to the hospital, he had died of a ruptured appendix. Ooh. Uh-huh. So that's that's what happened to my grandmother's first husband. Well, when they were when he was working away from home, they would write each other every day. And the handwriting was exquisite. It was absolutely beautiful. And mm-hmm. the love that they shared in the letters. And they were very, very um, proper about what they would say in, in writing to each other. And they, they were really beautiful. And then there was another pile of letters that turned out to be the condolence letters of mm-hmm. what people sent to her when he died. And the, the yeah. way they expressed themselves. And I thought, boy, if people would send those kinds of condolence letters nowadays but that that could help people so much they, they were just yeah. beautiful you make me think i'm i'm in that, that you're talking 1800s i presume right no it was 19 early 1900s but he, yeah but even then when was hallmark created when did they yeah. start when did they start putting sympathy cards together and quotes or whatever they put in the inside and and most of those letters as you as you talk about came from the person themselves to say how you felt and and um when I buy a sympathy card and and the older I get the more sympathy cards I'm buying I still always want to add something in there that's not what American Greetings or Hallmark wrote uh to make it a little more personal because I think it just adds another touch to have my own handwriting there, or when I get one, when it's happened in my family, when somebody has died and I'm reading the cards, I appreciate that little note. Maybe it's just three or four words that they, they write in their own hand, but it's really important. I think so too. I I found that most of the commercially created cards have essentially the same message and it's usually kind of trite. And when you open 30 cards and they all say the same trite thing, they're not helpful. No. So it's nice that the person thought to do something, and they're probably doing the best they could at the time, but they could be so much better if they just take a moment and, and write a little something in there. Yeah, yeah. Or just, uh, I'm just thinking of a couple people, you know, when friends of, fathers of my friends have died, a couple times I've just written a little handwritten note on the inside to say, hey, I remember this time with your dad or how he in or your mom, whoever, how they influenced me, and I get uh, a nice. I, not, not that I'm writing that to get a response, mm-hmm. but but people have said to me, I really appreciate that memory you had. I had forgotten about that, or it may help me remember that too. And for me, when I'm losing somebody like that, it helps me in the writing process. And I think so much of what. I think what this industry that has come about in the last 20 years in accepting grief and in dealing with it and helping people talk about it, I think we're all better for it in, in our in our generations now. It's I think in the at those times, except for those letters you found in your in your garage there, I think a lot of people buried those feelings. They didn't know what to do with them. They didn't know where to put it. They didn't and I know I have a grandfather that I mentioned in the book who um, 
who died six months after his grandson was was killed in the war in 1944. And some of us have said, I wonder, and he was, my grandfather was probably in his 60s when he died, but we wonder if it was it just, was it partly the grief of the loss of his oldest grandchild that just <laughs> six months later, he himself was dead. I mean, if that's, maybe that's the, the grief he was experiencing affected him physically as well. I mean, that's just an assumption, but I think we have so many better ways now. I don't think it makes grief any easier, but it gives us a place to put it <laughs> and, a, and makes it more ready for us to talk about it and have people listen to us and us listen to them. I think that makes a lot a big difference, big difference. Yeah. It really does. I, I always, uh, when, when somebody asks me what they should say to somebody who's lost someone and they just, they're, they're at a loss for words. And so many people, I got to the point where if one more person said, I'm sorry, if you're lost to me, I was going to yell at them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can reflect on that now and know they were doing the very best they could and that, that that's what they thought they were supposed to say. So I don't really blame them for it. But what I did was think about, okay, what would I like to hear? And so I I always tell them what, what I like to hear was something about my loved one who died, like like you were talking about. Yeah, sure. And it, it, it call them by name. It's okay to mention their name and then <laughs> tell them something uh, wonderful. And you, you get some of the neatest memories and uh, <laughs> beautiful stuff from that. What you're saying is bringing some tears to my eyes because oh. – I have a good friend who who lost both her children within a two year time period. Mm. And when we were when we would be together socially, uh, the rest of us might be talking about our children. Her children were both teens when they died. Mm. And she said to me one day, and it has always stuck with me, that um, she says, "When you have those conversations, can you just ask me?" <laughs> Can you include my my daughter, my son in the conversation? Can you, when you're talking about your kids, can you turn to me and just say, hey, how was it for her when, when she experienced that? Or how was it for her in high school geometry or whatever we were talking about? And so I always made an effort to do that because, like you said, you wanted to ask, you sometimes ask for what you'd like to hear. And she was able to ask me. And I, to this day, when we're together, in a group and, and the topic of our kids come up, I, I want to be able to do that, to include her in the conversation. So that, that's a beautiful. And I, I certainly understand the emotion mm-hmm. and your example of doing that in a group like that will have anybody else in the group think, Oh, you know, maybe that's something I should be doing too with somebody else. So, well, yeah. And I guess part of her, the, the, uh, this is 20 some years ago, but but thinking about it has made me aware of other situations I'm in when I know that I'm with the person that has lost a husband, a child, a grandparent, and I'll just, hey, tell me about what your grandma did, or what do you, you know, tell me about what, what happened there. So not that we can deny that the person has died, but we can we can add to them, we can help keep the memories going and stuff, and I think that's so important in the grief process. Because the Absolutely. grief process doesn't go away. <laughs> it's just, That's right. <laughs> it does. It doesn't. Uh, and I see things on different posts on Facebook or whatever. And 
when's this going to go away? And usually the comments afterwards, it doesn't, it doesn't, it's just going to, it's going to make it, it's going to peek in every once in a while. It's, it's not going to, and I, I guess the other thing I realize is in those comments and when it comes in, don't try to brush it away. Just, just experience it. And that your thoughts will go someplace else shortly, but enjoy that moment. Even if it's sad. Yeah. Just, just, it's part of who we are. Yeah. And, and it's, it's okay for those tears, mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. know, it, it really is. And a lot of people are so, I can't let anybody see that side of me. I, I just recently had a good friend whose dog was killed in, in the road. Somebody yeah, hit him. Right. Mm-hmm. And he was trying to tell a friend of his, I, I heard about this from his wife later, that, that he was trying to tell a, a friend of his what happened. And he just started crying. And he was just beside himself that he cried in front of his male friend. And mm-hmm. she, he, he told his wife about it. And she said, that's absolutely okay. You know, that's that's perfectly normal thing to do. And just because you're a guy doesn't mean you can't have tears. Right. They're, they're yeah. very important. Yeah, and if you don't get it out, what does that what does that do to you physically? What does mm-hmm. it do to you mentally? How does it eat at you in other ways? We we have to allow ourselves to be able to express it and to be able to be receptive to other people's sympathies, but also to know that most of close acquaintances, families do want to hear the stories and they they do want to uh, share in your grief and upset, I think, too. I think so. I think so, too. And I, I think one of the things that also pops up at times like this is judgment, that you might be somebody, you might be feeling somebody judges you, like like for crying in public. You might be mm-hmm. feeling that you're mm-hmm. judging, and chances are you're not being judged for something like that. Or you might look at somebody else. I, I know it just drives me nuts when somebody says, well, he died three months ago. Isn't she over it yet? You know, mm, that's mm. that's judgment. And so, when whenever you start to say something that could be judgment, think about it again before you say it, and see if you can say something else that's kind. Yeah, I think when I think of my dad's profession and my uncle's profession, I, I think after forty years in the business. What did they do with that grief? And I talk about it a little bit in the book and where do they put it? But, you know, that that's, I was, I'm a teacher by profession, a principal, but still my memories are, are still, are filled with students I had or teachers I worked with or the, the, the vibrancy of being an educator. But when I think of my dad, his professional work is probably not only thinking about the many families he liked working with, but the situations that they were experiencing and how I'm sure that he picked up on some of that grief or he was he was embedded in their grief while at the same time trying to help them make the next steps they needed to do. But I'm thinking that as I speak to you, those those thoughts were probably ever present in his mind, in his memory, in his as he re- reviewed his career and things. And even though he was helping people, I have to believe that he also was a part of each person's grief as well. I think so too. I know I, I witnessed that with my father that, that back in the olden days when we were going on calls together, the 
hospital didn't really have a regular emergency room. There was like an examination room by the back mm-hmm. door of the hospital, and we yeah. didn't have radio contact. So we would go red lights and siren up to that back door and then bang on the door, hoping that somebody inside would hear it and come and let us bring somebody in. And then they started calling doctors around town to see if there was anybody who could come in. Oh. So it it was really tough. And I, I remember one of those days of a, a wife of somebody who was, her husband had just died in an accident. And she was just hysterical. And dad just hugged her and, and held her. She put her head on his chest and he just, just held her that whole time. And I've been, I thought about it later that he was, he was so strong during times like that, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. that isn't something you often see, but he was very strong, but he ended up being somebody who could easily cry over anything that was emotional. Oh yeah. And that would drive my mother nuts. Like (laughs) that, that ambulance company is still in existence They're They're Mm -hmm. 63 years old this year. And I'm really proud. I'm still one of the owners and very proud of that company. But dad would be very proud of what he did with that company. And we'd have like a Christmas party to invite all of his employees and and thank them. And every time he'd get up to say things about the company and thank him, he'd be in tears. And my mother would get so upset with him. Mm -hmm, (laughs) And I thought... mm -hmm. That's that grief coming out. It's got to come out someplace. It can't come out when you're trying to save somebody's life, but it's going to boil over someplace. And and that's how I did it with him. Yeah. I, in the story I talk about, one of the stories I tell in the book um, is about when a, a, uh, an eighth grade, a friend of mine died. He was electrocuted suddenly. And my father was called and my dad had to tell me what had happened. And in then all of us who were all the friends were all 14 or 15 at the time, only 24 of us in the class. So, you know, it certainly impacted us as, as adolescents. And it was probably most of our first experiences, maybe with anybody that young. But then I talked to my dad. I have a dialogue in the book about dad. What, what were your toughest funerals and what were your toughest times? And he talks about when people, young people like this, my friend, or when a family loses a baby or uh, an infant or uh, when a, a parent who's relatively young dies. He he made reference to some cousins in my family who died very young. And so he combined it there and he said, you know, it's not only that they're family, but that they're so young. He said, people I know, he said, when, when people I know die, it's, it's very tough. So um, he was able to open up with me about that. But yeah, but still, when he was able, as I think back now, even talking to you and relating that story, as he's telling me what's tough on him, what did he do with those feelings? Where did he put them? I think I took, you know, he was a piano player. So mm-hmm. I think a lot of time he put him into the keyboard and he just, or the organ, he would just sit down and play or uh, do those kind of things or, or just uh, find a place to go, take a walk, uh, uh, or just find a place for himself. And you and I have talked about the power of writing. I, I'm not sure he kept journals, but I, if he did, I don't, I don't see him. But he, he certainly wrote a lot of letters. And I think in some ways, even though he might have been writing to me about things that were going on in his life, that was probably a nice release for him for the 
other things he was dealing with in his profession. He could just sat, sit down and write a letter to me or my brothers and just talk about the day's events or even if it was walking the dog or uh, or doing, you know, painting some woodwork or, or gardening or whatever, or golfing, whatever he was doing, he would write about it. And I think that was just his way to separate himself from the feelings he probably had professionally. So, yeah, I can see that. I, I was thinking about my mom when you were saying that, that my mom was strong lady, you know, she wasn't going to let anybody see her emotions. Mm-hmm. But the couple of times that I can remember her telling me about a call she went on, one of them was a call that I was, it was right before school in the morning and I, nobody was there, all the ambulances were out and I was going to have to go on the ambulance call and just miss school. And she got home just in time to go on it. And when I got home, she said, I'm so glad you didn't go on that call. And she went into great detail about what she saw. And it was so horrendous Mm. that I'm glad I didn't go on the call at my age either. And... I couldn't believe she had to tell me all this stuff, but I, I recognize now that she had to tell somebody. And and the other time she she told me something I really wish she wouldn't have was I'd gone away to college and somebody that I'd gone to school all the way through school with was killed in an accident. And mom had to deliver something to the mortuary. And for some reason, she was back in the room where the, the bodies were and she saw her and she mm. just had to describe to me what she looked like. Mm. And I still can't get that image out of my head. Mm-hmm. I thought, why, why did you tell me that? You know, I understand that you needed to deal with it, but that was somebody I really knew. And I, mm-hmm. I really mm-hmm. would rather not have heard that, that that won't ever go away. I guess, I guess in those kind of situations, uh, I mean, uh, trite saying discretion is the better part of valor, mm-hmm. I guess. But I, I suppose each of us, whether we're t- yeah, in our conversations, have to know who our audience is. Yes. And, and and whether we're talking about death or family secrets or or troubles we're having, we do have to, even though we want to get it out, I think we all have to realize the audience and be careful about who the audience is. Uh, and sometimes that audience is just ourself, and maybe that's mm-hmm. where the power of journal writing comes in, or just some people might have a tape recorder where they just record what they're feeling. Or uh, if you don't have a confidant or somebody that handy, you you got a notebook, and, and maybe those are some of the, that's I know that's helped me in some of my dealings, and some of the best therapy I've been in is those therapists that say I want you to write every day at a certain time and then bring those journals with you to our next session. And and that's been some of the most powerful and most effective mental health therapy I've had in my life. So I, I truly believe in journal writing. I actually teach journal writing classes because there's, there's so valuable for things like that. There's, there's some things I was thinking about an experience that I recently had where I saw something I, I really wish I wouldn't have had to see and what's been going through my head is you can't unsee something. No. So yep. what what I've been doing with that is writing it, but I'm writing it in a place that nobody else is going to see it because I don't want them to have the experience that I had with that. So I'm, I'm very careful about that, even if I have to burn them or tear them up and put them in the trash or whatever. But I got them, got it out of my head by writing about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's 
certainly that's what we have, but we got it right here in our hand, the pens and, and, mm-hmm. uh, and whatever we can do to, to express ourselves. Yes. And I think it's, uh, that outward expression is so much more valuable than inward expression. I think. Absolutely. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's more healthy. It's healthy. Mm-hmm. I think it's healthy to, to be able to find a way to, to do that. And the more and more people I listen to or read about that seems to be a common thread that you've got to find a way to, to unpack. I guess that's yes. a good word. I, a lot of presenters use that word. How did you unpack this? Uh, or I'm going to unpack this for you now, or we're going to unpack this together. I'm just thinking of presentations mm-hmm. I've been to, but that whole concept of unpacking is, is really important. We, we have to unpack those elements of our life. Yeah. Yep. Yes. Well, with this I could talk to you all day long. We've got, well, let's do it. Let's do it again. Yeah, we can do that sometime <laughs> and make that happen. But I'm so glad that you joined me today, and I really highly recommend his book. And I hope that you'll all go out and get it. There'll be links to um, Kevin in, in the show notes, so you can find them by looking down underneath the the notes for the podcast. And you can get your copy of his book and read it. And I, it's it's fascinating. It really is. It's a side of life that most people never get to to know anything about. So it's kind of a vision into something that's that's different. And I I really have enjoyed the the book. And well, thank you, thank you, Emily. That's good. As I said earlier, it's it's good to know. Even though my initial audience was was family. It's good to know that people like yourselves and others from whom I've heard that they're they're able to gain and learn and just enjoy. Uh, I think that's the important part. Just enjoy and and cry and laugh and and giggle and and just think, wow, I had an experience like that too. That that's the kind of thing that I was hoping for in writing the book, and I'm I'm glad it's happening. And I appreciate this opportunity to speak to you, and I I've enjoyed our conversation and have certainly uh, want to keep listening to what you're saying and other conversations you have, because I think grief is such an essential topic to life. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's a, it's a joy. It's, it can be a, a hard part, but it can also be a joy and, and something that's just so much a part of what we experience as part of life. So that's right. And and before we go, I just had one more thing I wanted to be sure to include. I've been in book groups throughout my life, and I've uh, enjoyed conversations in book groups about what we read. And mm-hmm. Kevin has marvelous book group questions uh, on his website that you can use with your book group when you adopt this book to have uh, fascinating conversations. So I highly recommend it for that, too. Sure, and I'm also I also include in, in the book and on the website that if if, if a book club wants me to attend uh, virtually or in person, uh, I've got in February I'm scheduled for about seventeen or eighteen wow. virtual book clubs, and then in March I've got a, a tour planned through uh, the uh, northern Indiana, um, Chicago area, to go to some book clubs. But uh, and I I'm starting to I am scheduling those now, so. If, Anybody, you can figure, you can learn about that on the, on the website or in the back pages of the book. And I'd be happy to to try to arrange something and have similar conversations to what you and I are having. Oh, that's that's wonderful! Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm I'm sure you'll get some takers on that. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, I have been so far. Yeah, so I'm hoping for more, and I I enjoy I enjoy these conversations and talking about it. So. 
Oh, that's great. Well, thank you all for joining us today for this podcast and uh, share it with your friends. I, I think it will be a fun one to just talk about what we talked about in the podcast today. Yeah, yeah. So okay. thank you Thanks, so much. Thanks, Emily. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for being here. Do you want more comfort, support, and happiness? Join the Grief and Happiness Alliance. Visit my website at lovingandlivingyourwaythroughgrief.com and read my book, Loving and Living Your Way Through Grief. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, rate it, review it, and binge on all our episodes on grief and happiness. I can't wait to welcome you back to another episode.